How wise are you? Can your wisdom stand the test of time? Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And this is a nice, fun family program put together by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And today we've got an exciting program for you. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. So yes, today we're going to be discussing a couple of things. We're going to talk about uh, wisdom, uh, specifically in the story of King Solomon. Then we're going to be talking uh, through a list of six counterfeit Jesus. Um, but before we get into those two topics, we're going to be talking about some interesting, funny articles. Um, and most of them come out not quite wise. Yeah, there's a lot of people not doing things in the world which would fall under the parameters of wise. And we need to take a look at that that so that we can make sure that we ourselves are being people of reasonable wisdom. And first up on our list today is a woman who went to the doctor for back pain and she ended up having surgery and they removed a tumor. Only it wasn't a tumor, it was a kidney and it was not supposed to be removed. Um, so Amanda, what are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, so this is very interesting. Um, one, not even related to any kind of kidney removal, so it's not like they removed the wrong one. And then two, how bad did her kidneys have to look for a doctor to mistake it for a tumor? Um, or did he, like, just barely pass medical school? We don't know. Um, but, yes, and so I think we also have a very funny meme that yes. uh, correlates with this. For once, Arnold is correct. It's not a tumor. <laughs> He's been waiting for that to be the correct moment for many, many years now. It does make the question, though, how in the world do you get in there and be like, is that, yeah, that's a tumor. Let's take it out. And I, I don't really know how that happens. Then again, I'm not a surgeon, so I don't know. Perhaps if you are a surgeon, you can tell us how you mistake a kidney for Wait, a tumor. Yes. Somebody, I wish, I hope somebody emails us and it's like, it's a lot easier than you think for some people. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, please email us if you do know. Um, next up on our list is... Also something which was quite bad. There was a Humvee which was dropped from an airplane, except it didn't land where it was supposed to. Some unexpected residents heard a loud thundering boom, and they went outside and looked to the sky. Was it a bird, a plane? No. Nor was it a tornado or a freight train. It was a Humvee that was dropped out of an equipment transporter, and it landed in a residential area about seven miles away from its intended target. The three-ton vehicle came down, hitting the ground, leaving a loud boom, causing residents to have no idea what happened, and shortly thereafter, its parachutes drifted along with it. Amanda, how would you feel if you went outside and, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's raining hard, people say it's raining cats and dogs, but then sometimes it literally is raining Humvees. It's raining Humvees. I, I thought it was funny, I just noticed that this took place in North Carolina, which is where I am from, and there used to be a joke in North Carolina that we were uh, 49th in education, and when told that, we asked, out of what? Um, so that just tells you maybe who was in charge of this drop. Perhaps they are 49th in accuracy of dropping Humvees from the, the sky. You know, that actually probably does make for a bad day. Oh and speaking of bad days for people, but good days for apex predators, um, Fox News brings us an article of a crocodile takes a bite out of crime when half-naked man breaks into an exhibit for a swim. Now, those of us who were from the 90s and maybe even the 80s and earlier, there used to be McGruff, the crime dog, who would always come around and tell us not to do drugs and things of that nature. <laughs> well, now we have the crocodile, and he comes to deal with criminals. And basically what happened is there was a 23-year-old man who broke into a crocodile exhibit to swim. 
Yes, this is a bad place to, to the sneak. The next logical choice. <laughs> the next logical choice. You, you don't have a pool. There's not a public pool nearby. Maybe you just need to go break in with the crocodiles. And I'll let you go ahead and guess where this story goes. The crocodiles bit him. <laughs> um, and he did escape, though. He had stripped his clothes off, and they found him in a yard bleeding um, in his underwear. So that wasn't very exciting. However, for those who remember, McGruff the crime dog actually went to jail because he was criminal. Do you, did y'all remember no, this? No, I don't remember that. Yeah, the the actor, voice actor behind McGruff the crying dog was actually smuggling drugs the whole time, and he's ended <laughs> up in jail now. And the world really needs a, a animal, you know, wolves are apex predators, dogs are, are canis lupus as well. We need apex predators to fight crime. And now we have the new crime-fighting crocodile. We've actually got a, a meme for this as well. Of course, McGruff the crime dog said... Take a bite out of crime, but the crocodile's a bit more to the point, saying just take a bite out of criminals. <laughs> more direct. It is more direct. Um, straight to the problem. It's not the crime, it's the criminal. And also, you know, they say crime doesn't pay. It certainly does it, but it does feed. It certainly feeds. Um, and while we are, we are on the, the topic of this, you know, the, that image there that we had photoshopped is actually the lizard from Spider-Man. And speaking of other comic book references, everybody loves that statement from Harvey Dent, you either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. The flip side of that, if you're already a villain like the lizard and you want to become someone who's not a villain, you either die a villain or you live long enough to coincidentally eat criminals because they willingly break into your <laughs> habitat. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll, we'll move on to that one. It was a bit predictable. <laughs> So in Germany, there was also some people up to nefarious crime that wasn't very wise. There were Germans convicted of stealing porta potties and selling them to the Netherlands. Now, one would think that there's not a black market for everything, but there actually is a black market for porta potties. Um, two German men, they were convicted of stealing portable toilets and selling them to a company in the Netherlands. Now, it's worth noting these men did work for the company that owned these porta potties. And they actually had a middleman and then buyers in the Netherlands. So they would smuggle these from Germany to the Netherlands. And, of course, what do we call things which are smuggled and they don't go through customs and have to pay taxes? Well, hey, man, it's a lot of work to get these things duty-free. <laughs> it is. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, this is supposed to be a, a serious program. and Quality program. Uh, this is quality programming here. Um, we're not just a bad segment on the 700 Club. Um <laughs> And Amanda and Anthony are both qualified to know how much of a prude I am in, like, real life. I absolutely hate fun. This is, like, the only place that I do anything that's not totally serious. Um, but, yes, um, the, the toilets were duty-free. You do wonder if they smuggled used ones or not. And we'll just draw your own conclusions. Send us your thoughts on that. Um, and other interesting news, and we don't have any images for this, unfortunately, but there was an Alaskan man, and I'll just pitch this to Amanda if she thinks this is wise or not, who was going to be going to prison because of sexual assault and abuse, and he faked his death. This actually sounds like a clever criminal. He has the help of his girlfriend. They fake his death. But then he gets caught because the girlfriend realizes that people are grieving, and she decides to tell all the people grieving that he's not actually dead, that they just faked his death. <laughs> and subsequently, the police come and arrested him, and now he's going to jail. Is it I don't know. Is it? Are you capable of stealing and getting away with the crime, <laughs> stealing some freedom if... You're going you to tell people? don't keep it a secret? Yeah, no, I don't, obviously not. I, I do think that's funny. There, there's a, a bit of compassion you almost feel for the poor girlfriend. She was trying to do something nice, I guess. 
Um, I guess if you really want to do something nice, maybe not help your boyfriend uh, escape justice. But besides the point, um, she was trying to relieve some some grief on the part of his parents. But yeah, that obviously doesn't work well. If you're trying to hide somebody, you usually don't tell people. Yes. And he's also being convicted of sexual assault. And yet she's doing all this. So a lot of depravity there. We are Wesleyans. We're in the Church of the Nazarene Holiness people. But the idea of total depravity is something which I find to be tempting more and more. Um Another story that we're going to cover real quick, and then we do have a meme on this one, is there was a fisherman in the UK who was, I believe, in southeastern Scotland, and he was going about his own business, minding his his own thing. He was fishing there on the shore, and about 50 very angry seals decided that they did not like him. And, you know, this is all a problem we have. We go to the beach. Of course, I don't because I hate fun and I don't ever go on (laughs) vacation. Um, I think we can all verify that, too, um, out of choice. But anyways... So there's these seals there, and you, all you want to do is have a nice day fishing, and the seals decide they're, 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 they've had enough of it. This man ain't doing this. So this, this horde of seals, about 50 seals, and they're, they're pups, they start chasing this dude. And they chase this dude, and they're hunting him down, and they run him up a cliff, and he gets stuck on rocks. And after, it takes a few hours for the authorities to come in and get him down, and they have to sort of do something with the sheep, not the, the sheep, the seals. <laughs> I know I can't even talk now. Um, we actually have a picture of some of the, the seals here who are very unhappy about this. <laughs> Honestly, if I was going to compare them to another animal, the first I would say is geese. The geese. Oh, yeah, those are mean. Geese are mean. Chase you. Yes, mm-hmm. get off my beach, <laughs> fisherman. And, yeah, so those are some places where people are not being wise. Do you all have a choice out of all of those people who is being the least wise of them all? So many. So, I, I, if I had to pick one uh, uh, to rule them all, I, I think I'd pick the the man who who goes into the gator cage because that one, you know, that's a bad choice to begin with. The other ones, you could maybe be like, ah, eh, that was some poor judgment, but this one was legitimately just stupid from beginning to end. Yes, you can kind of see where that one's going. Someone say you don't need wisdom to realize don't break into the crocodiles and swim with them. <laughs> But, well, and as we continue talking, or as we have talked about some uh, vicious creatures of the sea, we have a picture, uh, I guess, of a uh, dolphin attacking his nemesis, uh, the pufferfish. Um, yeah, basically what we have happening here, for those who watch our program, we actually have the undead remains of a porpoise that was found in a chapel d'Amhue off the coast of France. And you may ask, what are porpoises doing in, in church and where are they now? Well, you see, the dolphins and the other similar sea creatures, the sea mammals, they've all colluded together to have a league of extraordinary dolphins, and they've been fighting off this horrific wave of criminal blowfish. And we have a picture of them, and then, boom, his nemesis, kaboom, <laughs> is gone. You do wonder who is the biggest loser in that. If, you, if a dolphin hits a <laughs> blowfish, what happens next? I wonder if they, like, they bounce it up like a beach ball. They play catch with each other. Or I guess they would hurt, though, because they got little spikes on them. Yes, I don't know who the loser is in that situation, <laughs> but it is good. It's a hilarious picture. It just cracks me up. All right, well, we'll be back in a moment after break to have a serious conversation as we talk about wisdom. We've seen a lot of unwise things, but let's talk about some wisdom. We'll be back in a moment.
Alright, we'll be coming back now, and we're going to be talking about the wisdom of Solomon. Of course, Solomon is a king of Israel in the ancient world. He is responsible for building the first temple. And Solomon is often associated with the concept of wisdom, and wisdom is different from intelligence. Well, today we're going to be talking about this a little bit. And what we're going to do is Anthony is going to read some questions and statements, and Amanda and myself, we will respond to them. But before we get started, I want to read this one piece of scripture out of 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, or, no, I'm sorry, we're going to pick up a little further than that. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, there's some very important language there. First off, it frames this from the time they came out of Egypt, and also he's building the house of the Lord. Well, Anthony, would you like to proceed with the questions? Why does Solomon want to build the house of God? All right, so this is a really, really good question. Because, obviously, Solomon's not the first king. He's also not the first ruler, even. If you go back, there's the era of the judges. You have people like Moses, who is leading the people. You have a lot of leaders. And the question is, why does Solomon find it important to build the house of the Lord? Amanda, what are your thoughts on just the concept of the house of the Lord? Well, I think, one, it becomes this kind of physical manifestation of where God resides. And, and the people have always had this. Like you mentioned, Solomon's not the first leader. Um, you, you have the pillar of fire or the pillar of smoke that lead the people. You have the Ark of the Covenant that, that leads them into battle and different things like that. But the temple really becomes the permanent structure. And also, I think it's interesting that it says the house of the Lord. And in most Bibles, when you see Lord in all caps, it means that was the personal name of God. Uh, so it's not just God or kind of a generic word uh, for, for a deity. But this is the name which uh, God gave to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. So this is saying there's something very intimate. Uh, going on something very intentional that's going on when Solomon decides I need to build something that directly helps the people relate to God and also God to the people. And another thing too, this temple, it is magnificent. It is beautiful. It is much taller than any other building that you would find in the area of Jerusalem. It towers up on top of the temple mount and it reaches up to the heavens. And when people see the temple, they see the house of God, what they realize is God's presence is there with them. It's sort of a visual reminder that wherever you are, just like you can physically see the temple if you're there in its area, God can also see you. It's a reminder to the people that God is active in your life. And of course, Solomon, he, by his own confession, he starts off his reign in a bit more peaceful time than his predecessors. And he wants to have peace. He wants to have a stable society. And he knows that he needs to have the presence of God there with him. He also wants to have the wisdom of God, and this is one of the things which Solomon is always pursuing. He wants to have the wisdom of God embodied in his personal life, but he also wants to have God living amongst his people, and therefore he sees it's very important to have God's house built. Why does Solomon invite people to live in Jerusalem, and what requirements are placed upon them? Okay, so this is another very fascinating point, and if you go through 1 Kings, you'll notice that the word house is used quite a bit. Whether it be with the, the two ladies who are disputing over the, the child, um, they live in a house together. Or it's Solomon, he goes and he marries the daughter of Pharaoh, and she's brought back to live with Solomon. And you see also Shimei told to build a house. You see this recurring thing where Solomon wants people to come and live in Jerusalem. He wants people to come there, but there are requirements. They have to become people of God. 
And not only does he want people to come and live in Jerusalem, he also wants to build the house of God so that God will be there with his people. And it's an interesting theme that we see. Amanda, what are your thoughts on that, that whole question of Solomon bringing people to live? Right, and so there, there's some like diplomatic things going on. He's kind of drawing, he's building up uh, Israel as a, a kind of a real kingdom in which to be acknowledged. Uh, Saul's kind of done some of this, and David's obviously done a lot of it. But like Pastor Dylan said earlier, Solomon's in a time of peace, so there's not that infighting that happened between Saul and David or amongst David's um, siblings. So he's kind of, things have calmed down, where now Israel can start looking at really establishing itself. Um, but also, again, because uh, this is the people of God, you don't just invite people into your nation to become a great nation like all the other nations have done. Uh, you do so in context of who God is and who and how God calls people. Why does Solomon frame the building of the temple in the context of how long it has been since the people of Israel came out of Egypt? I think it is so fascinating that he does this. He doesn't hit, say that this is the how many years since we've had a king. He doesn't point it back to Saul or David. He doesn't point it back to even the time of the judges or even to the life of Moses at the starting point or perhaps coming towards the promised land or anything like that. He points to the moment they cross the Red Sea and they go from being slaves to a free people. Now, they're not yet an established nation, but the process of becoming an established nation where you've actually got a very significant mass of people, that is initiated the moment they cross the Red Sea. And one of the things which is fascinating about that moment is that is a moment in time which God initiated. Yes, God did initiate a covenant back all the way with Abraham and Sarah, but the people, they really didn't have land yet. They didn't have the direction they would have as they did later with Moses and the Ten Commandments. But when they cross the Red Sea, when they find themselves in the wilderness, this is the initiation of a people who used to be slaves, who now are free, and they are walking to the Promised Land. They are going to build the nation. It's the beginning of that initiation. So one of the things that's fascinating about that is Solomon is saying, God initiated our kingdom, and that's one of the reasons why we are building this temple. The house of God is a reminder to us of who initiated this kingdom. We did not, just like we didn't give birth to ourselves. We didn't design the universe. We didn't give order to everything. We were not there to initiate light and mass and everything that's in the cosmos. Something else did, just as God initiated this kingdom. Amanda? Well, yeah, and I think the story of the Exodus has become a, a very pinnacle um, or really the ultimate story of the people of Israel. Um, even today, uh, for those who still practice Judaism, uh, Exodus is, is vitally important for who they are as a people. And so when, when Solomon kind of harkens back to this story, he really is proclaiming this idea that God is saving. And so, yes, the temple becomes this symbol, this very tangible, realistic um you can go into it, you can, you can interact, you can eat, you can smell, you can hear, you know, all of your senses can become entrapped by this experience that God is still present, that the God who saved our ancestors uh, from slavery is now the God that is still uh, protecting and guiding and leading uh, the nation of Israel. This is going to deviate us a bit from where we had planned out our show to go. But when we look at things like the holiness rules, where you would say, you know, Ladies, they don't cut their hair. The, the men, you've got to wear a shirt and, and tie everywhere you go. This sort of old school holiness rules where you don't go to movies, you don't play cards, things of that nature, no dancing. Really, one of the reasons why these things existed was they were trying to say we, are, we have a different style of life. 
And it was trying to communicate that once you become sanctified, once you become holy, your life is changed. Now, a lot of that devolves into some sort of fundamental, not even holiness at all. It's one of these things where you can't force people to be holy. But I think we have lost something in the church where when you have beautiful architecture, when people even dress in a way that's um, perhaps, I don't want to say upscale because you can be class with, without spending a lot of money, but people who, who carry themselves and they have beautiful architecture and a beautiful just general characteristics around them, it is easy to communicate holiness. Amanda, do you see the temple being a physical sign to people of God's holiness, something which you can visualize and say, that is magnificent and it draws me in my mind to a place where I'm thinking about holiness? Yes, definitely. And I think also when you connect the idea of the temple um, to kind of the, the, I guess, the 1900s um, holiness code and things that have happened in the recent history of the holiness movement, um, we see the same, um, I guess, great uh, prospect of those ideas, but also the, the kind of the fallacy of them that eventually comes is just as in some people in the holiness tradition decide to rely more on the dress code than actually the idea of holiness being relational, the people of Israel are ultimately going to fall because they trust salvation comes from the temple versus actually from the God who resides in the temple. And so those things have to be kept in balance. We don't destroy the temple, nor do we forget why the temple is there. It is a means of grace, but it is not the initiator of that grace. Yeah, the temple, it is a medium to reveal the grace. That's very. That's a good way of thinking about it. Sort of like the the there's the materials which are used to make a painting. You have a canvas, oil paints, things of that nature. But then there's the idea that's actually behind all that. And holiness is greater than the things which we have in a world like Maybe it's our, our clothes or our home or even our, our church buildings and architecture like that. All right, what's our next thought, Anthony? The wisdom of Solomon is attributed to God, but do you think Solomon's intelligence played a role? Intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. There are people who are highly intelligent and not very wise. I'm going to leave that there. And then there are people who may not be the, the greatest I thinker in quantum physics, but yet they have a lot of wisdom. Wisdom and intelligence are different. And Solomon does spend a lot of time attributing the wisdom he has to God and showing that, well, God initiated this just as God initiated bringing us out of Egypt. What role does faith have in building a city and a nation? All right, I'm going to just go ahead and throw this right to Amanda. Amanda's been talking in the past how where you look at people like Nebuchadnezzar, or not Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah, <laughs> the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> when you look at people, you find that a lot of times, in order for them to go and start rebuilding parts of Jerusalem, whether it be the walls or even people in the time of Zechariah, Zechariah or Haggai who were building the temple, they have to have their faith in the right place. No? Right. And so we've talked about this a lot before, even in when we apply this to our modern day lives, is we have to start with a place of faith. And then our politics, our, how we want to structure our world, our societies, or whether it's something as small as a community or as large as a country, that all comes way downstream. Um, it has to start with a place of faith or it has to be a foundation. Whatever kind of word you want to start as your analogy, your beginning has to be in faith. And really, if we're going to confess um, truthfully orthodoxy, it doesn't start with our faith. It starts with the faithfulness of God, who God is. Um, and then as God reveals God's self to us, we respond. And then with God, we participate in the redemptive and creative acts that God has already enacted with. And so, yes, yeah, so when we're talking about building a city, even quite literally as putting brick and mortar together to build a building and to look at it and say, ha, that's where God resides. It obviously has to start with the very character of who God is. And as we've mentioned before, God is holy. And therefore, the building that is built 
to honor God and to represent God must be holy. And so it takes on very distinct and specific characteristics. This is a piece of wisdom which is somewhat hard to conceptualize, especially in our modern world where people are really excited about what's going on in pop culture. They have taken politics and twisted it so far out of hand. And so many people forget that all of that is downstream from where a nation is at spiritually. The faith and the morals that people live by in their lives, the, the, their understanding of who God is and that we as people, we're not God, that is what's going to shape all of those other things. And what we really need is spiritual revival. There is a man named Shimei who has committed crimes against Solomon and his father David. Why does Solomon have mercy on Shimei and invite him to live in the city? All right, so one of the things I find really interesting about the time that we find in 1 Kings, this whole deal where Solomon, he's wanting to build the house of God, but he's also going to different people and saying, come and be in Jerusalem. One of those people happens to be a guy named Shimei. Now, the language around Shimei can somewhat be a little bit ambiguous. He's a guy who kind of got into things with David a bit. He got into it with Solomon. He's a member of the house of Saul, and he's an enemy of Solomon in a sense, but not entirely. And Shimei is someone who, he's been a victim of certain things, but he's also been a victimizer of certain things. He's sort of like every sinner who has ever lived. They've done some things wrong. They've been a victim of some things, but yet that doesn't let you turn into a monster. And earlier we had almost got into reading this story, but for time purposes, if you haven't read of the, the story of Shimei, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 2, you can read, he's first there in verse 8, and then it picks back up in verse 36, and then it goes on for a little ways. Shimei basically, Solomon comes to him and says, I was told to execute you by my father, but I'm going to have mercy on you. And again, Solomon is embodying, he's channeling the wisdom of God, and he's also trying to channel the justice of God. Now, Solomon is not God. He is a flawed man, but he is the one who has been anointed by God to be a tool and a leader in the kingdom. And Saul, Solomon, as he comes to Shimei, he says, look, I'm going to have mercy on you. But here's the deal. You're going to come and live in Jerusalem. You're going to come live in the, the kingdom of God. But... You're not going to leave. You're not going to go back to the Philistines. You're not going to go anywhere else. You're going to come, build your house, live, and be in peace. And Shimei says, oh, you're so wise and just. And we see this as a lot like how God works with us. He comes to us and says, look, you've had bad things happen to you. You've also been a terrible person at times. You're cursed and you're cursing other people. But I'm going to have mercy on you. Even though you don't deserve it, I should come and with all of the power and might smite you from this earth. But I'm going to have mercy on you. But you've got to come into the kingdom of God. You've got to turn away from things. And Shimei is willing to do this for a while. But then Shimei, he has a few slaves and servants, and they run away back to one of the, the Philistine cities. And Shimei himself, he really likes that. And we find this happens in our lives. We come into the kingdom of God, and maybe it's been a, a previous temptation or maybe just something out there in the world that tempts us. We like our things. We like our servants. We like the things that we can, we can make our slaves and even some of the things that make us slaves. We like them. We like some of the corrupt things in life, and we go out after them. And we find that we are moving back towards sin. And when Solomon finds out about this, he goes to Shimei and says, Look, I told you, you know, you can come and you can live with my mercy in the city and you can be blessed and prosper. But you've thrown all that up in my face. So now I'm handing you over to be executed. And the story of Shimei ends with his execution. And while God is a just and merciful God, and the justice of Solomon is not a, a perfect embodiment of the, the justice of God, what we do find is this call that God says, look, I have mercy on you, but come into my kingdom, 
But you've got to, you, there are standards. You're supposed to live Christ-like. You're supposed to look at, at the life of Jesus Christ and ask yourself, what can you do to live more like that? And that's an interesting thing we find there. What is the natural conclusion of having a place where people can interact with God? All right, so if we say that Solomon built the temple, or as we're hearing the story that Solomon built the temple, and it was so that there could be this very real place in which people can interact with God, even if it was through a mediator, the priest, and different things like that, why is that there? And then what is the response to that? And I think the natural conclusion to this whole conversation is that people are then invited um, but then there are expectations. And so as we talked about with the story of Shimei, um, Solomon says, hey, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to give you mercy. But then you have to live under my jurisdiction. And this is what God does. Is it to be holy? Um, and sometimes we kind of mystify that word. But basically it just means to be complete, um, to be set apart. And so God says, if you really want to live life and live it to its fullest, if you want to know what true love and holiness is, this is how you're going to live your life. And obviously when we break those, that, those expectations, it's not that God is sitting up in heaven waiting to smite us with a lightning bolt, but when we break that covenant and we do things that are hurtful, we're going to get hurt. Um, and in the story of Shimei, he finally gets executed. In our own stories, um, the consequences may vary from minor to major, but Ultimately, the conclusion of, of having a real representation of, of God amongst us, whether that be uh, the body of Christ as we see in the church or something like a practice of, of communion, is that then we are to respond to that holiness by being holy people. Very good. And we'll be back right after the break. We are back, and it's amazing. Whenever we go to a break, because we're doing this live, like all hands go for something to drink. It's, an, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. All right, so we're going to do Hot Not of Sanctified, but only with one item, because we're going to be looking at a list, which Anthony has prepared for us. Um, and from the title of the list, it didn't seem like it would be appropriate to do Hot Not of Sanctified with that. So we're going to be rating things from whether they are just a light heresy to full-on, straight-up pits of hell evil. Um, but first, we have a meme. And Anthony, would you share this meme with us? If th if there's a heaven's no and a hell yes, why isn't there a purgatory maybe? <laughs> All right, now we are trying not to be <laughs> profane here. We are just looking at this. It's a, it's a good question. Um, what do we think about purgatory maybe? Hot, not, or sanctified? <laughs> Hot means we like it. Not means we don't, and sanctified says only God can decide. I like I like the idea behind it, but I do think as a phrase, it does not roll off the tongue as the other two do. A purgatory maybe is a lot of syllables to get out, but it doesn't roll <laughs> off the tongue. So, um, but I do I do enjoy some of the thought behind it. So I'll go with hot. I've already decided I'm using it. <laughs> the next chance I get, if I remember this, I'm using it. So hot. Well, I think I like how it's like the assumption that the intermediate place between heaven and hell is not it's, like earth but it's purgatory. purgatory like you get like i don't know what the implications of that are i'm going to say hot to this as well <laughs> you always hear people who say you know people who don't have a good language or dictionary in their mind they they use a lot of profane words there's actually a reason why people say things that are profane there's actually a biological reason behind this it's a a more primitive side of the brain i'm not beating up on things, but I'm just saying there's, there's an actual side to this. And even animals, 
Um, whether you look at like um, different primates and even things like rats, they have the ability to, they have sort of a short guttural sound that they, they squeal out whenever <laughs> something goes bad. And it's a way of sharing with other people that there's a crisis. So early language development and very primitive language development is the same part of our brain that operates whenever people are saying swear words. Um, whenever like you stub your, your toe or maybe you catch a finger in the car door so it shuts, then the things which people say, it's, it's a more fundamental part of the brain. It's a, it's a simpler language mechanism that is being activated and there's other animals that do that even though they don't have a full vocabulary, but they do have different sorts of squeaks and squeals they do that means specific threats are at hand and you'll find even throughout different languages, swear words tend to be short guttural things that roll off the tongue well, whereas purgatory maybe does not. not. So much. But it is, it is kind of fun. It's kind of hilarious. And so the title of this list is Six Counterfeit Christ Figures You Need to Stop Praising. <laughs> fun times. All right. And what we're going to do with this list. So Amanda and I, we're going to be rating these. It's the one to five star scale. I don't think we wanted to say hot, not, or sanctified to anything on this list, though we have no idea what the list is. Anthony's responsible for this. <laughs> One star means that it's just a light heresy, and five stars means it's total pits of hell evil, and you can send us your thoughts and comments as well on this. So, Anthony? For the record, he said, I'm responsible for this. I'm not putting my name on this. This is just for the topic of discussion. But You found the list, but you did not create the list. Yes, we're not throwing Anthony under the bus. <laughs> we We asked him to find lists that we can sort of discuss discuss that's the right all right number one and so number one is title political jesus and then the first line of description liberal conservative environmentalist pro-life the name of jesus has been used for all these isms and more well it kind of depends on which use it is where it stars it gets this is always something that always bothers me is when people take the Lord's name in vain and they say, you need to vote for this, insert scripture here, insert something here, right. and they're branding their own political things as if they're of God. That really bothers me because I think it's not only a form of idolatry and taking the Lord's name in vain, but it's it's such a dishonest manipulation. I don't know that I've ever seen a politician do this in a way that didn't drive me up a wall. <laughs> um, it really doesn't matter who's doing it, something where it always drives me up the wall. Amanda, I may let you. Yeah, that's. I think. I think it is. Um, it seems for for a lot of us, especially if you've been paying attention to the political arena um, ever, um, it, it seems almost mundane now because everybody does it. So there's a temptation to give it a, like a one slight heresy, but it is. It, ultimately, it is idolatry. It is selfishness, which is I think at the heart of sin. Um, so I think I'm gonna give it a four and a half. I'm, you know, I was going to give it a three and say, because it can go either way. Let's go all in. Five star. Total pits of hell evil on this one. Five star. <laughs> and so moving on to number two on the list. Title, Prosperity Jesus. And then the first line of the description. Prosperity Jesus is the Jesus you hear about on the 90s televangelist shows. And I think that sums up the rest of the description. Well, if you wouldn't have said the 90s televangelist shows, and I think this even goes back before that and also after that, the people mm, who, yes. who... Sadly, it was not left in the 90s. It was not there. I'm um, not going to call any, any things out. Um, please subscribe to our channel, though. We're not, we're not trying <laughs> we're to not do that. We're not that 90s we, evangelist. We, we please promise. tell us we're not that. Please leave us a five-star review and, and reassure us that we're not. Um, a different kind of five-star, not this five-star. <laughs> the reason why I want to give this one 
a lower rating. I'm thinking I'm going to give this one a two star because I actually think there are people who may not have high intelligence or high wisdom that are sometimes guilty of this prosperity. And I'm talking about people on TV. Mm-hmm. You, you took this towards the direction of TV. And some of the people that we see on TV, I think that they are being sincere. And I think the people that come to watch them are also being sincere. But I think the the people, I don't want to call them straight up pits of hell, antichrist, because I think some of these people actually do have legitimate convictions. I just think that probably the the minds behind this movement, again, I'm not talking about the people who watch it, but I'm talking about the people that are actually on TV. They're not... They're not always the the best and brightest. Yeah, I think I understand your logic, so, but I think I'm going to bump it up to a three just because um, I think there is some – some of it is a manipulation. And honestly, they've thought down, they've thought this through, and they're like, we can manipulate people if we proclaim a prosperity gospel. And then I think there are people who are so broken and so hurt. They just – they need hope, and they're willing to kind of buy into this exaggeration of what hope means and this um, – this this manipulation of of hope and so yeah I, I think it's not it's not the pits of hell but it's definitely heresy so I'll go with the three if if we were to break it apart and say prosperity gospel and then say the televangelist I would have a different answer for each of those I would probably give the prosperity gospel where people actually are believing it. I'd probably give that one like a one star and I'd probably do like a three or four if it was just the televangelist because mm-hmm. I feel like the televangelist are well, one day they will answer to a just and loving God, and we'll they're see how that like one goes. The, they're, the, they're, they're like, I feel like some of them, which again, I don't, I don't know who to beat up on people, but I feel like they're a little bit like the white-collar criminal who's not the most creative criminal. And I know the pitchforks are coming, <laughs> and the pitchforks are so coming. They're not the most creative. And I'm talking about the ones who are corrupt, trying to get people to yeah. give them money. And they're, they're so they can buy you. the third Rolls Royce. Just yes. so everybody is aware, we're talking about the corrupt TV televangelist here. I feel like they're they're not the the brightest at coming out with the scams and manipulations, but they've got something they're working, and they're manipulating people. That I want to give a really bad rating, but because it's mixed in with the other, I'll come in the middle and, and say the two star. Alright. And so the next one is best friend Jesus, and the first line on this isn't very descriptive, so I'm gonna have to skip around, but. The BFF Jesus stereotype doesn't dive deeply into who Jesus really is, and instead is just a buddy we can all hang out with. It does not build a real, sustainable relationship with him. I should be harder on this than I am because it's one of those things which picks the virtues of Jesus at random and it doesn't take the full gospel. Jesus really has this balance of mercy and severity, that he's the logos and love, which means he's something of transformation into holiness and out of chaos, and also something which is compassionate and empathetic. This is like only the empathetic side of things. It is shallow, but it also is not cohesive enough to create a a worldview that I think is... It, it can be destructive, but I'm only going to give it a one star. Yeah, I think so too. I don't know um, if you saw this if this fad happened in, in your world or in, in Anthony's, but um, when I was kind of late middle school, early high school, um, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts were really popular. Like, and not just in Christian circles, everybody. Like, it was a fad for real quick. And I think that's exactly why this, I would also give this just a one star is it's not great theology. It's not even good theology. Um, it is bad theology, but it's so shallow, it's only going to be a fad. It comes in, it comes out, it will get revived every now and then, but no one's going to give it a lot of credence. Yes. And now for the next, Passive Jesus. 
Jesus died on the cross so the Christians would have a way to ask for forgiveness of sins and one day enter the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is a savior, not a free ticket into heaven. All right. So this was not taking like a passive stance on like how we respond to threats in the world. This is just like a passive theology. Like everything is sort of passive. Um, you get to sit around and wait for nothing. Um, or wait for everything, I guess I should say. <laughs> Act on nothing and then wait for everything. Hmm. I think, again, all these have such um, terrible conclusions that you feel like you need to give them all fives. Um, and this one's really prevalent, I think, in our world where there's a lot of people who say things, but I'm not sure people who truly have surrendered their lives to Christ, even if they believe that Jesus has saved and sanctified them. And even if they like singing songs like I'll Fly Away and You Can Send the Pitchforks to uh, 1253 Vault T Boulevard, which is Trinity Church in Nazarene. Um, even those people who focus merely on heaven as a one day someday, I, I think if they've really loved God, they still live their lives as holy people. So even though there is a dangerous eschatology involved in that theology, um, I think the people who only use that as an excuse are people who haven't really experienced or allowed God's love to really interact with their lives. So I think it's more manipulated by people who aren't Christians than it is actually used by Christians. So I'm going to give it a two. That was a real long explanation for that. but yeah. And I'm going to agree with everything and say one. I'm, re I'm taking it down a notch. Just like The this. next counterfeit Jesus. Fixer Jesus. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could live comfortable and convenient lives. See, again, I think a lot of people kind of use this, and this is bumper sticker theology, you know, like, um, I'm, uh, what is it, I'm not perfect forgiven, which is like, that one I'm going to say is the pits of hell theology and is a number five just because it aggravates me so bad. Um, but yeah, Jesus just came to save us and give us a comfortable life. <laughs> Obviously, if you do anything more than a cursory reading of your scriptures, I mean, let's just start with the fact he was born in a manger. Uh, let's start with the, the pinnacle story of Jesus is being killed on a cross after being tortured. Obviously not. So let's, I don't even know what to give this one. It kind of just annoys me. What, what star rating do you give one that annoys you? I'm going to give it a three. And my justification is for this is because it's one of those assumptions that it comes from the wrong way of thinking. People have lived in different circumstances throughout time. And this is one of those things which is talking more about the situations of life than the morals which guide you through those situations. This ruling that, oh, you either, Jesus is going to come and make your life comfortable or Jesus is going to come and make your life uncomfortable. I think both of those are centered around the wrong thing. We are called to live Christ-like, and that's true whether we're living in a time of great persecution where being strong with the faith means you go to the, to the, to the griddle and you get put in the hot seat and you get burned and melted alive. Or that means when you're living in a reasonably comfortable place that people around you still need the gospel. I don't think the question is whether or not are you living comfortable. I think whether or not are you actually doing the things which Christ has called you to do. One of these popular things that I've heard people say is, Jesus, whenever you see him going places, he crosses over the sea and he goes over there to, to meet people on the other side. And it's like, yes, that is true, but it's also not really true. I don't think Jesus would care if people were on the other side of a body of water or not. He's just going to people who are lost. Um, it's, it's like when people say, oh, Jesus goes out to touch the untouchables. It's like, yes, but he's transforming them. And he also trenches, transforms people who may be normal, healthy people that you would be willing to touch. It's not a question of whether you're touching someone who's gross or not or you're going somewhere geographically different. The question is, are you embodying the gospel? Are you teaching people what it means to be living Christ-like? Are you living Christ-like? 
Are you actually getting to those first principles, those primary expressions of what it means to live as a holy person? And are you embracing the gospel and sharing it with others? Yes. <laughs> I agree. I love all that. So I said three stars. Okay. I'll go with that. Amanda, final answer. Three stars. Yeah, I'll go with three stars. I don't even remember what that question was anymore. It's just it's gone. <laughs> Fixer Jesus. Fixer Fix Jesus. Oh, yeah. For our next counterfeit Jesus, we have counterfeit Jesus. <laughs> Wait a second. Before we go further, who or no, actually names these? Because when you started with, like, prosperity Jesus, I was going one way, and then you're like, televangelist, and I was like, other way. And then, like, Fixer Jesus, I was thinking, like, the side of Jesus that is only, like, the brutal transformation, like Solomon when Shimei acts up. <laughs> Um, the hellfire brimstone is kind of where I thought you were going with that. Who knows? All right, so the last well, one is... I will give them some credit because um, putting one word in front of Jesus to define these counterfeit Jesuses might be a little bit hard. So, But I, I don't know why I said counterfeit Jesus. I think it's because there's money in this picture, but it's actually genie Jesus. And so money, cars, kids, a house, and a dog. They all sound like part of the typical American household. However, is that all we're living for these days? And then the final sentence, the Bible says, seek the kingdom of God, not riches. So this last one is genie Jesus. Genie Jesus, yes. I'm going to say something I should have said at the beginning of this. Jesus Christ does not need a qualifier. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the root of all heresies is not picking vice over virtue, but choosing one virtue at the expense of others. And so I'm just going to say total depravity on all of this. I know we should have entire <laughs> sanctification language. It keeps going back to depravity. Come on, world, universe. <laughs> Don't be so depraved. Um, I mean, I'll let you give this a star rating before I do. Okay. Well, and I think, though, to your comment about total depravity, that is something that is often used in more Calvinistic circles, and we are not Calvinists in our theology. Um, and the difference is, though, how we take that into holiness language is this, is that, yes, the world is very broken. I mean, horribly broken, and people are so stupid um, and unwise, and they make horrible mistakes that continue to hurt themselves and others. Um, but we believe that God's salvation is sufficient enough to bring us out of total depravity versus some of our more Calvinistic brothers and sisters uh, believe that brokenness will always remain. Um, and so when we hear this about this um, genie Jesus, again, this is, this is the, I don't know, this is sinfulness coming back in us where we don't want to be challenged to live holy lives. And we want to trade the call of Christ for this quote-unquote American dream, and I'm not picking on the American dream. If you've got a house and two cars and 2.5 kids with a white picket fence, you do you. I don't care. Um, but if our identity is solely found in those things or in achieving those things, then again, we have traded in um, for depravity um, versus holiness. And holiness is something which is attainable. Again, the New Testament was sincere. Jesus was sincere in transforming people. When Paul writes to us, he is sincere. The Holy Spirit, when it comes at Pentecost, it is sincere. However, it is something which is rare and precious. It is something which is available to those who will pursue it and receive it, but it's also something which is precious. It's a lot easier to be depraved than, well, to not be depraved. So I'm going to give to that one, I'm going to say, I'm actually going to give it a, a four star because I think it, it's quite manipulative and I think it's one of those things which actually ends up biting the person who's doing the manipulation as much as it does those around them so I'm going to give it a four star mm -hmm. all right well that was the end of the list if you guys would like to we can critique what they have at the bottom for the real Jesus 
or we can call that an episode. Well, why don't we just call that an episode? I think we've run a little long anyways. Um, we thank you so much for joining us. It helps us so much out if you share our content. Please give us a like, subscribe. If you get on YouTube, you can subscribe to our channel. Click the bell. It helps us out tremendously. Get onto Facebook. Follow us at Kingdom of the Logos. And, of course, our podcast is free on a lot of different places. And if you would like to donate financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the Logos. On that, God love you and have a blessed day.